Well, good morning. You fired up to be here yet? It's good to be here, isn't it? It is so good to see you guys. Take your Bible. We're continuing a teaching series through 1 Peter. So take your Bible or your smartphone or device and scroll or flip to 1 Peter. If you're not sure where that is, go to the table of contents. God provided those for us, right? Um, we're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 13 this morning. I, like I've said before, it's one of my favorite books in Scripture. And as we walk through this, Hopefully today you'll begin to see some of the applications we're going to extract in order to fortify ourselves spiritually. Now I want to kind of give you a warning. This morning uh, during our first service, I could not get through the entire message, okay? So I just messed up my entire teaching series and we're only going to deal with three verses. Y'all okay with that? And then we'll catch the rest of it up and just totally blew out my entire schedule. But that's okay. God's still in control, right? So, as we progress through this this morning, I want to remind you of a few things, and if you've missed it, it's okay. Let's kind of, just kind of review a few things. First Peter was written by who? All right, let's say that again. The 930 was better than you. The first Peter was written by who? Peter. Peter was Jesus' number one disciple. He was the leader of all disciples, the oldest of the disciples. He was the, really the leader of the first early church. Uh, God used him in some profound ways, but it's interesting, he grew up as the stereotypical Jewish kid, was in synagogue and learned everything about the Old Testament, grew up to be a fisherman, so he was a kind of a blue-collar guy, man's man, had his own business, and as Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee one day, he saw Peter and said, Peter, you follow me, and he dropped his nets and immediately followed Jesus. And so for the next 18 months to three years, he experienced and encountered what it meant to be with the divine. He spent time with Jesus, became dedicated, became loyal. Suffered with one huge problem. He had something called foot and mouth disease. You know what I'm talking about? And you got that issue. He spoke before he thought, and as he was speaking before he thought, many times Jesus had to correct him. But one thing he said to Christ, he says, Jesus, I will never leave you. I will always be beside you. I will never betray you. Christ looked at him and said, By the time this day is over with, you're going to betray me three times. The night he was crucified, what happened? Peter betrayed him three times. But then in John chapter 21, you see something beautiful with Simon Peter. Peter was reinstated. God brought him back. God used him in profound ways. If you fast forward to Acts chapter 2, right after Jesus ascends into heaven, Peter stands up in the middle of Jerusalem and proclaims the gospel. We call that the day of Pentecost, and over 5,000 people come to know Christ. Incredible testimony about how a guy who was far from God, grew up very religious but ignorant in his understanding of who Jesus was, followed Christ, became loyal to Christ, but then... Betrayed Jesus. Does that sound like any of you guys? It, sound like, it sounds like me in a lot of ways. This is a guy that God should have never used, but he did anyway. And then after that betrayal, Jesus reinstates him, and he does powerful things in the name of the gospel. Later on in his life, as he's, re- he's writing this letter in 1 Peter, he's probably writing it from a prison cell. If not now, soon afterward. And as he's writing it from the prison cell, his death is coming. In fact, you can kind of smell persecution in the air as he's writing this passage of scripture when the Roman Emperor Nero uh, condemned all Christians he had them killed and Peter was one of them and they were going to crucify him and he says I will not die like my Jesus crucify me upside down so he did and there he ended his life but a life that was about hope a life that was about redemption second chances grace ordinary man doing extraordinary things a life like you and I right that's why I like First Peter. He's just a guy that is totally relatable. But we've got to be mindful of a couple of things 
just some things to think about. As he's writing this passage of Scripture, as he's writing this letter, he's addressing it to what we call exiles. You see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. You see the introduction to the entire book. And many times when we use the word exile, we're using it in reference to people who have been kicked out of their own country, whether it's because of persecution or whether it's called a famine or something like that. But exiles in this sense is pointing to people who did not know Christ, came to know Jesus, and now their citizenship is in heaven. They're exiles on earth because they're not home. If you know Christ, you're in exile. You know that. This is your temporary home. This is not forever. And so he's writing this letter, and really we see the purpose of it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. We've covered this several times, and the passage says this. He says, so then those suffer who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to really two things, to their faithful creator, do you see that? And to continue to do good. He's telling these Christians, as you live your life as exiles, fortify your faith by doing what God says and trusting him. That's it, right? Everything pushes against the believer. Now, I'm not saying that in a combative sense, because many times when we say is count, everything in, in our lives is counter-Christian and we need to fight against it, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as we attempt to live our life for Jesus, it's like swimming upstream. Do y'all struggle with that like I do? The entire book focuses in on how we fortify our faith, how we trust God in that fortification, and how we do what he says. And so two weeks ago, we dealt with the first two verses, and we introduced all of this stuff. Last week, we talked about the first three, really three, verse 3 through 12, and we talked about this incredible prayer that he begins his letter with, this blessing that he gives the people that he's writing. And the blessing really focuses on one thing, your salvation. Now, hear me on this. If you skip out of everything I say for the rest of our time together, hear what I'm about to say. Are you all ready? Your salvation is not based on you. It's based completely on Jesus. 100%. You can't save yourself. I can't save you. Your mama can't save you. You can't make it to heaven. I can't make it to heaven by doing enough good things. It's just not going to happen. 100% of our hope is Christ. 100% of perseverance in that hope is Christ. 100% of spiritual growth is Christ. Your fortification is Jesus. You get that? Now tune out. Just kidding. Don't. So what we're about to do over the next few minutes together is begin to take what fortification looks like and really over the next couple of chapters deal with specifics on how you fortify your faith. You with me on that? Last weekend, my daughter Caroline and I sat down and made our first pound cake. My daughter's a great cook. She's an incredible baker. Um, And I uh, found a recipe from my great-grandmother, Caroline's great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother, and decided that, hey, let's make uh, Grandma Maxie's pound cake. That was her name, Maxie. And um, so we laid it out on the kitchen table. I've never made a pound cake before. I'm really not a baker at all. But I thought, man, there's instructions here. We ought to be able to figure that out. Now, the interesting thing with people back in those days is they don't put specifics on their measurements. You know what I mean? It's like add a dash of this. Add a pe- What is a dash? By You know, I think it's on my keyboard. Y'all feel me on this? But add a little bit of this, add a little bit of that, add just a helping, helping, okay. So that, and and so we're trying to take these instructions and make them into a pound cake. And um, so we decided, remember Caroline, we decided to make it healthy. So 
you know, you got like 18,000 eggs in this and 16,000 pounds of sugar. So we decided let's not add, add as much butter and let's, and, and let's do coconut flour because we want to be gluten-free because we're better than you, right? And so we, we, we decided to put all that in there. We mixed it all together, put it in the pan, sprayed the pan, put it in the oven, baked it, and pulled it out an hour or so later, took a slice out of it, and it was the worst cake I have ever put in my mouth. It was horrible. I mean, the dog wouldn't eat this thing. It's terrible. So we said, you know what, we got enough ingredients, let's make another one. So we decided to do that. This time we put the right type of flour in it, so we thought. Then we put enough eggs, ran out of eggs, put all this butter in it, stole some from Grandma, put all that in there, mixed it together, baked it, brought it out, and it was just okay, right? There's two things I gather from that, and this is our point with this. First of all, in order to bake the right cake, you got to do the ingredients correctly, right? In order to fortify your faith, you got to follow directions. Culture's going to tell you to fortify your faith this way. Check out your horoscope. Wrong. Culture may tell you to fortify your faith this way. Karma. We all like that concept, right? Can you know how unbiblical that is? Let me, let me just throw it out just because I'm about to insult everybody in this room. Here we go. Do you know how pagan karma is? It is pagan. I mean, it's not Christian. I mean, it's just not. I mean, if good things are going to happen to you because you're good, Jesus should not have been crucified. You follow that? So that's just part of it. And so sometimes we, we, infuse, we infuse what culture says for our own spiritual growth. We've got to fortify our faith according to what the Bible says. Now, the second thing I learned, this is probably what you were asking yourself, is what's the second point of that illustration? The second one is let mama help her with the cake next time. That's the second point. (laughs) But as we dive into this text this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tear it apart in three or four verses, okay? So we're going to do a lot of teaching on the front end. So you can take notes, and then I'm going to give you some principles and application on the back end. Are you all with me on that? So I'm going to talk even faster, all right? Um, And we're going to dissect these few verses and help you understand what's going on. Notice what happens here. Starting in verse Let's, let's go to verse 13. Let's start right there in verse 13, chapter 1. Notice what happens here. Therefore, stop, don't go any further. Every time you read a therefore in Scripture, what do you do, church? You read backwards because, to find out what the therefore is what? Therefore. And if we go backward in Scripture and try to define why that therefore is there, we find it relates way back to verse 3. And what we learned last week, verse 3 through 5, let's read it to you real quick. Notice what happens here. It says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope in the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed his coming. There's that therefore. Connect it back to verse 3. Praise be, to God, the fa- praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Stop here. We learned four things about that verse, really through verse 5 last week. And this defines the word therefore. One Our salvation is based on God's great mercies, not our great effort. You see that? Two, we learned also that we get second chances. He has given you new birth. Three, we learned that our our life, our salvation is in a living hope. Jesus is alive, and one day you will be in heaven. And then four, the assurance of salvation is based upon Jesus and his power, as you see in verse 14 and 15, not our effort. You can't lose your salvation. Go back to verse 13. That's what therefore means. And he's saying this. Therefore, 
with all of this in mind, that your salvation, that your second chances, that your new birth, that your assurance is all in Jesus. Therefore, notice what he says next, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Stop right there. Time out. Notice this. There's a word play here. Really, there's two images that pop off the page. The first one says this, with minds that are alert. That is a word play basically saying this, gird up your mind. Literally, that's what that means. Now, help, let me help you understand what that means. In ancient times, men and women, but men specifically, would dress in robes. They would have a belt around their waist, and if they had to get anywhere in a hurry, they would have to take the robe and tuck it into that belt so they could run. Does that make sense to you guys? That was called girding up, getting ready to run fast, because I've never ran in a dress before, but I bet it'd be difficult, all right? And that's why. So they would gird up, tuck it in their belts. And what Peter is saying here is this. Therefore, because of this great salvation, because it's 100% God, because you don't deserve it, because you get second chances, because you get new life, because the power of your assurance and your salvation is based on Jesus and not your effort, therefore, be alert and get ready with your mind. You see that? Get ready. And then the next point is this. Be sober-minded. Do you see that? The idea of being sober contradicts the idea of being drunk. It means be clear-headed. Have clarity. To fortify your faith, he's saying, therefore, your salvation is in Jesus. And living that out, be clear-headed and be ready. Do you see that? Then we dig a little deeper. And he continues to write these words, and he says, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, there's a flavor here, or an essence of end times in that verse, and it should be. And what he's saying here in this is simply this, is it be ready because one day Jesus is going to come back. And set your hope on that. Set your hope that when it's over, it's good. Set your hope that you have a future. Be clear-headed, be alert, be ready. When the Israelites were in, uh, enslaved in Egypt, um, Moses was brought forth and he came to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. You know the story, right? And, and, and Pharaoh would have none of it. And so God brought about several plagues. Y'all remember that? And the last plague was the plague of the Passover. And what he told Moses is, I'm going to kill every firstborn and every firstborn animal in the whole kingdom of Egypt. And if you don't want your children killed, smear blood over the doorpost of your home and an angel of death will pass you what? Over. But he also says something else in Exodus chapter 3 verse 12. I'm sorry, uh, chapter 12 verse, uh, make sure I get that completely right because I forgot. After cha Exodus chapter 12 verse 11, and he says this. He said, as you get ready to leave, make sure that you guys are dressed to go away. You're dressed for travel. And the reason being is this, is as the Passover happens, Pharaoh's going to let you go. That will be your deliverance, and you'll be ready to get out of here. Make sense? It's the same kind of thought process in 1 Peter. He's saying, as Christians, you're exiles. God is rescuing you, so therefore be ready. You get that? Be ready to go. Even today in Israel, the Jewish culture, when they celebrate Passover, dressed with their staffs in hand, ready to go. Because it symbolizes God is delivering us. Isn't that cool? God is delivering you too. Now let's tear this apart a little more. Notice what happens next here. Verse 14. As obedient children, now stop here. Now let's define this word obedient. Now, 
Obviously, you're like, Chip, I know what obedience means, right? Many of you have kids. You know what it doesn't mean either, right? <laughs> Let's understand obedience. It's not just simply doing right and wrong. We interpret the word obedience from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Let's throw that up on the screen because I want you to see this. This is in the, in the introduction of the letter. And, and Peter's writing this. He, let's let's kind of skip halfway down. He said, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Do you all see that? It's the same word for obedience. And basically what the word obedient means in that context is this. It's the obedient step of asking Jesus to come into your life to save you. Does that make sense? And so let's get back, go back down to verse 14. And let's read it again. He said, as obedient children, meaning as children of God who have taken the step of faith to ask Christ to come into your life. You see that? That's what that means. Therefore, going back to verse 13, Christ has saved you. That's all his doing. He is doing a great work in your life. So therefore, be ready, be clear-headed, and set your hope in Christ. And because Christ has saved you, you are obedient children. Here's the thing. Here's your command. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Now stop here. Let's define two more things. Evil desires are the things that we want to do separate from God. You follow that? That's not hard to define. Because 100% of us that walked on this campus today have evil desires. Agreed? Everybody say yes. You do. All right? If you didn't say yes, you lied. So here's the thing. You're an evil desiring person. All right? But the flip side of that is I want you to notice another little caveat in that phrase. It says, those of you uh, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in what? Ignorance. To live in ignorance means to not have a relationship with Jesus. You see that? Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a profound difference here between knowing Christ and knowing about Christ. Now, here's where I'm going to stamp all over your toes. So prepare yourself. Most of us in this room, not all of us, but most of us in this room, grew up with some type of church background, right? You went to vacation Bible school, possibly. You went to a revival service. You went, you, you did something, right? You, you, you at least got some flavor. And I would say many of us in this room at least make a statement of belief about Jesus. Would you agree on that? But that doesn't mean you know Jesus. You follow me on this? Knowing about Christ does not mean you know Christ. And that's what he's pointing at. You live in ignorance when you only know about something rather than know something personally. You follow me on this? So here's where I want to push down on this just a little further. Is your salvation based upon a knowledge of or a knowledge about? You get that thought? Have you truly asked Christ to come to your life? It's not enough to say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, my goodness, the Bible says demons believe in Jesus, people. It's a recognition that you are lost, that you aren't going to go to heaven without Christ, that there's more to this life than what you currently have, and you need to ask Jesus to come to your life, period. That's it. Have you made that step of faith? Now, the point that Peter's making at this, at this juncture in our text, let's go back to the text there and notice what it says. He says, don't be conformed. Don't let yourself be fashioned around the evil desires that you once have in the ignorance that you once lived in. Now, that might be a pagan lifestyle for these folks. I don't know what it is for you, 
but a lot of it's a works-based mentality on how we live out our faith. It makes sense to you guys? So don't live in that ignorance again. Now let's, let's, let's travel a little further down the road here. And let's finish up with this. Verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now let's, I'm gonna inter, I, wanna, I want you to understand the word holy here. Because we talked about the a holy God. And maybe you have a holy Bible. You've heard the word before, right? But the word holy literally means to be set apart. The word holy is the nature and the character of God. It's who he is. He is set apart. He is perfect. We are not. In fact, we all live by the whole saying of nobody is what? Perfect, right? Because God is holy, it's why we need Jesus. You get that? Because we're tainted, we're sinful, and he can have nothing like that around him. We need someone to build a bridge between us and the Lord. It's something that has to be perfect. Something has to pay the price for the things we do wrong. Someone has to continue to live for us. And that person is Jesus. And here's what happens at the moment of salvation for us. We become holy too. Not always in our attitude and actions. Would you all agree? But in your identity. You are now set apart if you know Christ. And so the commandment is, let's go down to verse 16. As it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, let's leave that on the screen for a moment. I want you to see this. The imperative, the command there is to what? Be holy, right? Be set apart. Act right. Why? Because I am, circle that two, those two words there, almost 100% of the time when you see the phrase I am in Scripture, it's, it's, it's the name of God. We go all the way back to Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3. Moses encountered the burning bush, and God calls himself who? I am. So he's saying, be holy because God is what? Holy. Set yourself apart. Be different. Don't be a citizen of this world, but live your life as an exile. You follow that so far? But that begs the question, how do we fortify ourselves? And so really the simple answer we're going to deal with this morning is you have, to win the, you have to win the mind games. All of us have mind games. Would you all agree on that? All of us struggle with what's going on in our brain. 100% of us. Whether it's because of family of origin, whether it's because of sins, whether it's because of circumstances, but we all deal with mind games. I love to read about our special forces and military history. And I was reading an article about Navy SEALs. Um, and these guys that are Navy SEALs at a young age, they go through uh, basic training, they get involved in whatever branch of the military they're in, and then they apply to go through what they call BUDS, which is a 24-week course to teach you and train you to become a Navy SEAL. The first week they call Hell Week, which is the worst week ever. They average about five hours of sleep during that week. It's a terrible, terrible, physically grueling experience but more so, if you read what these Navy SEALs have to say about it, is like the mind games are crazy. I was reading one article about a guy that was basically writing to tell those who are prospective Navy SEALs how to handle the uh, Hell Week process. And he says, basically, you've got to think positively. You've got to think and deal with the mind games. And he talked about one occasion about how the sergeant and the guy that was training them 
gathered the whole group together and says, look, we're going to the beach, and you're going to go sit down in the frigid, temper- in the frigid ocean. You're going to lock arms, and you're going to sit in the wake and in the waves of this cold water until somebody quits. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe before you got out there, I'm out. Let's just be the hero for a moment, right? <laughs> so they get in, and they all sit down in this water, and it's not because of physicality. It's not that. This is all mind games, right? Sit down in the frigid water, and about 30 minutes in, somebody gets up, and they ring this bell, and it means I quit. And then 80 guys follow me. Crazy. The remaining guys still sitting in the frigid temperatures, still sitting in the waters, are sitting there locked arms, watching these guys go up the beach. And to make things worse, the drill instructors brought an ambulance onto the beach filled with donuts and hot coffee. And all the guys that have quit are sitting there drinking hot coffee, wrapped in blankets, eating donuts. And these guys are still in the water. If you don't win the mind game, you don't win, right? So how do we begin to fortify faith by winning the mind game? Extracting some truths out of what we just learned through 1 Peter verse 13 uh, through 16. Here are a couple of things. The first thing, is, first thing is simply this. You have to have a knowledge, and that knowledge is of who you are. You've got to have a knowledge of whose you are. Very simple. Now this is important for us at this moment. Because if we go back to verse 13, we're dealing with that word therefore again, right? Remember, therefore, we define that from verse 3, and therefore means you get new mercies, second chances, you also get new life that's eternal, and you have assurance that's held on through the power of God. That's, That's it. So the knowledge that you live with as a Christian and the knowledge you live with as an exile in order to fortify your faith is whose you are. So whose are you? This is important. Many of us define ourselves by what we do or what we like. And Peter's saying this, look, therefore, keep your mind active. Gird up your mind. Be clarified. Have clarity. Be sober-minded. And as you live life circumstantially, have a knowledge of whose you are. You follow that? Because understand this. Knowing who you are empowers you to be whose you are. You get that? When you are a child of the king, you have the knowledge of knowing that you can make it. That you can fortify yourself. I grew up with eight tracks and record players. Anybody feel me on that? You know what I'm talking about. And one of the things with a record player is that you would put these records, this piece of vinyl, on the record player, you put the needle on there, and it would play all the way through, but you could skip from one place to another and that kind of stuff. But if that record was scratched, it would get hit on repeat, and it would say the same thing over and over and over again. It happens with CDs, it happens with DVDs, and it happens with people, right? They begin to say the same thing over parakeets, all right? And what the reason we say that is that We've talked about this before. We have to learn to preach to ourselves this truth. We have to put the whole concept of a knowledge of whose you are on repeat in our brain. Because as you struggle with the evil desires, going back to verse 14, and the ignorance that you once lived in, you have to tell yourself, I have to tell myself, I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of the king. I am redeemed. I am ransomed. I am free. I am forgiven. Go back to verse 3. I have new mercies. I have second chances. I have new life. Verse verse 4 and 5. 
My salvation is held together by God through His power, not me. I'm a child of the King. You get this, right? You fortify yourself by saying, I have a knowledge of whose I am. So question, whose are you? There's, there's two thoughts to this. Some of you, definitely Jesus. But, we aren't admitting it day in and day out. Maybe you went and just decided, I want to get a little fire insurance, just in case. I don't, I don't even know if that's a true salvation. I'm just going to be real. But knowing whose you are, Powers you to be who you are. Transition a little further here. You have a knowledge, but you also have to understand that to fortify ourselves, we have to have an understanding of our future. An understanding of our future. Go back to verse 13. Get this. At the very end of that verse, not only does he talk about being clarity, being clear-minded and, and being alert, but he says this. He says, he says basically, put your hope, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. There's a country song out there, and we all know country songs tell the truth, right? Because one day you're going to get your mom back and your dog back and all that stuff. But there's a country song out there, but it's a mantra that almost all of us live by in this room. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now. Would you all agree? All right. Thank you. (laughs) But here's the thing. When you become a child of the king, circumstantially speaking, there is nothing better than heaven. Not the relationship you have with your spouse, no matter how good it is. Not the love you have for your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. It is not better than Jesus. Now look, I want to live till I'm old, and I want to rock my great-grandchildren on the front porch of my house right now. Not right now. A long way from now, all right? I'm only 29, so why do y'all laugh at that? (laughs) Because I lied. Evil desires, right, okay. So, <laughs> but here's the thing. Regardless of your circumstance, heaven is better. Regardless of the love you have for your spouse, heaven is better. Regardless of how much love the baby in your arms, heaven is better. Heaven is better. And the knowledge of whose we are and understanding of our future empowers us to fortify ourselves. You get this? It gets better. Regardless of how bad it is, it gets better. Regardless of how good it is, it gets better. Do we understand that? Do we gather that? Do we, do, do we see that happening in our lives specifically? Christians are called to seize the day in Scripture. And that's true. But understand this, as you live your life, Christians are called to seize the day with tomorrow in mind. Christians are called to seize the day with tomorrow in mind. We live for tomorrow. And tomorrow is heaven. You get it? Last thought, and we'll get out of here. Notice this. Go back to verse 14 and 16. 14 through 16. He talks about this. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you were lived in ignorance, but just as you were, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Here's the deal, really quick. Let your actions be based on your belief. Let your actions be based on what you believe. Now here's the thing. If we were to ask ourselves, and I'm including me, do my actions represent what I believe, the answer would be what? 
sometimes, right? I didn't say no. I'm giving us all a pass here for a minute. Sometimes. But here's the point, and this is what he's saying. Fortify yourself by how you live and let your actions, let your actions represent what you believe. And if you believe in Christ, filter your life, your worldview, your perspective, what you do, what you think, through Christ. Let your actions be based on your belief. So the question is this. Are our actions based on belief? And the belief is in Jesus. You see, the thing is this. What we believe about God should determine what we do and how we live. I want to kind of leave you with this for a moment. What do you believe? What do you believe? I love what Peter's saying here. He's like, look, these first, first three or four verses here, guys, look, fortify your life. You're exiles. Fortify your life. Have that knowledge. Your salvation is in him, okay? This is who you are. Also, have that understanding that no matter how bad it gets, you're going to go to heaven because of who he is, not who you are. And then finally, as you live your life, look, live it out with the belief that you know Christ in mind. That's truth. That's hard. And we're going to talk about how to, how to do that next week. But understand this. There are some fortifications that we need to make. There are some fortifications that we need to put in place. And so I want to give you four action steps, or three, I'm sorry, three action steps this morning. As we attempt to fortify our lives, and then we're going to get, get done and take communion. Here's the deal. Fortify yourself this morning through repentance. Fortify yourself this morning through repentance. Repentance is an incredibly beautiful and scary biblical word. You've heard it all your life, right? Most of the time we see guys holding up signs that says repent, right? But here's the thing. Repentance is beautiful, and it's necessary for your salvation because we recognize we're going the wrong direction, and we turn around and go the other. And here's the deal. If we're trying to fortify ourselves spiritually yet going in the wrong direction, your fortification is weak, right? So what do you need to turn away from? Where does repentance need to happen? This is something that every Christian should practice day in and day out. So I need to change some things. Second thing is fortify yourself through discipline. Fortify yourself through discipline. And what I mean by that, when that phrase says, be holy as I am holy because I am holy, so we've got to grow in some things. Grow in that knowledge of what Scripture says. So get in the Word. Grow in the knowledge of who God is. So get on your face and pray. But make it a disciplined point in your life. I feel like I'm the most inconsistent, undisciplined person. Do you guys ever feel that way about yourselves? I mean, I try to read the Bible, and I fall short. I try to work out, and I fall short. I try to eat right, and I eat more. Y'all ever deal with this? This is where we have to lean upon the Lord. This is where your answer comes next week, so come back for part two, okay? I'm going to leave you hanging. But choose to discipline yourself. Fortify yourself. Get in the Word. Get in prayer. Last thing, fortify yourself by choosing Jesus. This is for those of you who may not know Christ yet. You're choosing Jesus to say, I need fortification spiritually because I don't know who I am. I have no knowledge of that. I have no understanding of my future. And I need to ask Christ to come into my life. I need my identity to be completely changed. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to do one thing. Take the connect card you were given. Check the box that says, today I need Christ. For others of you, maybe you had not been identified in front of the whole church because you haven't been baptized. And that's you. Okay, check that box. But take that significant step of faith. So what, what do you need to do this morning? What do you need to do as you leave here? How do you need to fortify yourself? What do we need to repent of? What do we need to discipline ourselves in? And then finally, do you truly need Jesus? 
not a knowledge about, but a knowledge of. Feel me on this? Take the step of faith God is calling you to take. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the hope we have in you. I pray, God, that in these moments as we take communion, that you'd be high and lifted up, that you'd demonstrate yourself in a profound and powerful way, and that you'd overwhelm us with your grace. Give us the strength necessary to live for you. Give us the passion that we need to serve you. And give us a focus on what you're about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Located in this room are two tables in the front and one in the back. And we're about to take communion. And communion is a representation of who Christ is. Christ's body was broken for our healing. And his blood was shed for our forgiveness. And we take communion because it reminds us of what Jesus has done. It reminds us of the greatness of our salvation. So here's what we're going to do this morning, and this is how we do communion here at River Hills. The Bible tells us to prepare our hearts to take communion. That means prayer. That means repentance. Maybe you need to step out and ask forgiveness or forgive someone, shoot off a text, whatever it may be. But prepare your heart to encounter Christ through this. The second thing I want to encourage you to do, if you, ha- if you have kids here and they don't know Jesus, I'm going to encourage you not to let them take communion yet. And here's why. This is a special, important thing. It represents who Christ is. To be quite honest, if you don't know Jesus, this is just a weird snack. But if you do know Christ, this is a profound symbol of the depths of your salvation. And so one of the things I made sure with my children is we didn't let them take communion until they knew Jesus because we wanted them to understand the depth of what communion was about. So I encourage you to do that, maybe explain it to them when they get home. And the last thing is you take this step and prepare yourself for communion. Spend time maybe honoring God through the words you're going to see on the screen and really worship Him for who He is. And so as you feel prepared, you come up and take the elements back to your seat and we'll have communion together as a church. Let me pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Give us strength and perspective this morning. Overwhelm us with your grace and give us a significant encounter with you. In Jesus' name.
pray together. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the hope we have in you. Thank you for the pain and suffering you took so that we might know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Be mindful of that. Remember that. Take and eat. This is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. Remember that. Take and drink. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the hope we have in you. Thank you for the grace we have in you. And I pray, God, that in these moments that we'd be mindful of who you are and the significance of the love that you've shown us. Give us the peace that we need in order to live our lives for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys remain seated just for a moment. Um, as we announced last week, Travis is last Sunday leading worship for us is this morning. And we want to honor him and tell him how much we love him. And he has no idea we're doing this. And so uh, I'm going to hand it over to Megan just for a second. And then they're going to sing a song possibly after this is over. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, so, Megan. Hey, Travis. <laughs> hey, um, this is just a small token. Travis, it's got a lot of your favorite things. We've got letters from all those you've worked with, all those who love you so much. And um, it was really funny. I looked back at 10 years of pictures, and seeing the progression of Travis's beard is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Travis, all that to say, I think I speak for so many people. Thank you. You're, through God's leadership and guidance, you helped form and grow this, this worship team to what it is. And, I mean, he literally helped build this stage. So, Travis, thank you so much. Um, I know personally it's been an honor to share this worship stage with you for almost a decade now. And we're just excited to see where the Lord leads you in, in this next chapter of your life. This isn't goodbye, everybody. It's not goodbye. <laughs> but we love you so much, and um, thank you. We can't say it enough. So, guys, be sure to just tell him how much you love him right and appreciate him. Who is that guy? <laughs> I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. We were looking at a hairless Travis. So <laughs> it's kind of like a hairless cat. It's like, what is that? <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, we love you. And can we just clap for him one more time? Stand up and tell him how much you love him. We appreciate and love this guy more than you know. More than you know. So you guys stay standing. Y'all are going to sing one more song. Stay in here and sing it. As you exit, put your Connect cards in the basket and have a fantastic Sunday.